All right, so uh, these people come from the back, and they're going to hand you out these bags. Keep your hand up until you get one of these bags. Uh, you know what we're going to put in these bags? Exactly. It's that time of the year. You go home, you bake some cookies. If you're really bad at baking, you go to Costco or Albertsons and you buy some. And, and, you, and you can't be the judge of your own cookie. Because if you're like, I use baking powder instead of flour, it's not a good cookie. If it hits water and foams, not a good cookie. All right, so what's going to happen is you're going to take these home this week, and next week you're going to bring them back full of cookies. We're going to put them all in the back, and you're going to eat cookies that everybody else brings. Hopefully none of you will get sick. And if you do, you're not going to know where they came from anyway. Ha-ha. <laughs> Be like, it was that cookie, I know it. it. wasn't that sermon that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's that cookie. Now, uh, we take the extras when we're done, and a few years ago, we took them out to the base and dropped them off there for the guys out there, and then someone stole our idea. But that's okay. We got more ideas. So last year, what we did is we took them down to the Santa Maria PD for the people who had to work on Christmas Eve and dropped them off. Well, this year, they said they don't want them from us because we could just be like the Joker, right? And we having like some hijinks like on Christmas Eve. Let's get them all. Set. Have some cookies. Baking soda. So they're like, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't want them this year. So like, great. So we're probably going to hand them out to like the guys who have to work at the firehouse on Christmas Eve and things like that. So whatever's left over is going there. They're not just going to my house, although they could, you know. But so, so that's the deal. So, so make them bring them back next week, and the extras are actually going to go to help people in our community. Last service, some, someone said, why don't, why don't you give them to your neighbor? And I said, why don't you bake some and give them to your neighbor? And then I said, sorry, please come back. All right, a lot of people are asking about the Hobbit movie. Last year, we rented out a theater and I went to see it. Uh, we were changing that this year. We're doing it a little bit different. Uh, we're not going to go see it today because everything is like so packed. We did not rent out a theater. What we're doing is planning on the 29th, the Sunday after Christmas, that we are going to pick a showing time and we're all going to go to that. Rather than renting out a theater and having people come to us, we're going to go out into the community and watch a movie with people. Hell novel. Wow. Okay. It's kind of like what everyone's supposed to do anyway, right? We send you guys out all the time. Out, out. So on the 29th, we're going to, I'm sure uh, times will change for the movie by the time that we get there. So that morning, we'll, it'll be somewhere between 2 and 4. And we're going to go see that movie. And then we're going to show up in mass. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to hand out some prizes. So if somebody from our community happens to show up to this movie, they might just get a prize. They'd be like, sweet, furry feet, dragons, and prizes. So I'll let you know. So if, if, you, if you haven't gone to see the movie and you're planning to go see it, wait for us. We'll all go on the 29th to see it at some theater somewhere. <sighs> it's my third service today. I don't know why I'm so tired. Uh, welcome to Ellen. My name is Aaron. Uh, if you are new, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables uh, throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called YouVersion. Click on Live in YouVersion, and you will get the sermon notes based on GPS in your smartphone. You get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with it. If you are watching on the video, type in 93455, and you will get up by zip code all the stuff that you need as well. I want you to stand with me to read of God's word. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. 
And I guarantee where we're starting today, you're not going to see what's coming at you. All right. Uh, it says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fallen and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would be those who understand and trust you. That what you, what you have done throughout the course of human history would make us stand in awe of who you are. And we would live lives that worship you as Savior, King, and Lord of all. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in this series on Jesus. I know for a while you felt like you only saw me every other week because we kind of been tag teaming with some GC leaders as they share with you some of the things that inspire them most about Jesus. Uh, Next week, I'm actually still going to be here again, but I'm going to be interviewing somebody and I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag until next week. You've got to come and see it, but it's going to be awesome. And Christmas is still another week off, but we don't want you to think when this series is over, we're done talking about Jesus Well, one, because we always talk about Jesus, but this series is going to go up until the third week of January. And then on the 26th of January, we're starting our next sermon series. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's going to be expository, going verse by verse through it. Originally, when I did this, I thought it'll be 24 weeks long. By the time I got done with it, it's 47 weeks. (laughs) That's how it works around here. I think it's going to be amazing if I say so myself. Even if you're like, that sermon was horrible. I'd be like, it was amazing. Okay, so, but today what I want to do is start to get you ready for a little bit of Christmas. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start with a verse probably most of you have always uh, have read. If you've been to any Christmas Eve service, you've probably heard this verse read. It's kind of the beginning of Luke's story of the Christmas story. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, In those days decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now people love these verses because you start to hear these and you think, Oh, wonderful, Christmas is coming, it's right around the corner, baby, manger, it's all wonderful, presents, they're coming. But actually in the scriptures, this is a really sad verse. Because what it tells you is the very first Christmas was not a Merry Christmas. There is no eggnog, there's no mistletoe, there's no Christmas carols, there's no presents under the tree, no sleigh rides, no men in red suits with cushy laps to sit on when it's not creepy, and, and no cookies. And no cookies. It's a bad Christmas. I don't know if you have ever had a bad Christmas. Maybe all your relatives were gone and you were left alone, or you were alone and all your relatives showed up. <laughs> kind of depends on the family you have. I guess. Maybe you talked about something you really, really wanted for a really, really long time, and then Christmas came along, and you had this really, really great package, and you were really, really excited, so you opened it really, really fast, and it was underwear. You know, I was like, my wife's family, they're always buying me Barnes & Noble gift cards. Barnes & Noble's like an hour away. I mean, give me, I can buy anything in the world on Amazon. Give me Amazon. (laughs) Every time, here's your Barnes & Noble. Or, or what they do is they buy me extra large shirts. It's like, seriously, people, shop in the junior high girl section. It will fit me. It's all you got to do. All you got to do. I mean, maybe, maybe you've had, like, a, a family blow up or maybe even lost a loved one during Christmas. So you come to Christmas, and it's not the happiest time for you. When I was a kid growing up, I loved Christmas. I couldn't sleep the night before. I'm always listening, oh, are those reindeer hooves on the ceiling? They must be. You know, Santa's here. He's going to give me my, my things. And then when I hit... 20, I was like, yeah, Christmas isn't a big deal, because I got so lost in all the commercialism of it, all the manufactured moments. And then in, in my 30s and now, you know, my, my early 40s, because I am getting older, I love it again. I love it again. But 
love more because I got rid of all the expectations and simply love what it represents. And so when things in my life aren't going my way or getting what I want, I appreciate Christmas for what it truly is. And hopefully by the end of this message, you will be there as well, seeing the truth of what Christmas represents. And for you, you know, this year could have been full of joy or it could have been really, really messy. You could have financial issues, a relationship that's fallen apart, uh, maybe regret about a decision you've made this month or this year. But when you understand Christmas properly for what it is, it can turn all of that around. This is why Luke, in chapter 2, verse 10, talks about when the angels show up and they say, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, why is that the case? Why is it good news for great joy? Because this first Christmas is one of the most depressing tellings of the Christmas story you will ever hear or ever read. When you're at the bottom, you only have one way to go, and, and that's up. And you might think that your Christmas is bad. The people in Israel had it bad. At Christmas, we want happy thoughts and and happy smells and happy things and and great cookies. But today, we're going to look at what happened in the pain that was involved in the first Christmas because it's a downer. You might think, this is going to be a horrible message. It'll be okay by the time we hit the end of it. And I want to talk to you about some people involved in that first Christmas and how Jesus is seen as Savior and King over all. And that brings good news of great joy no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. So, you got to start with the macro view, which is where Luke 2 actually starts, of who ruled the world at the time that Jesus first came. Rome is ruling the world when Jesus first came. And how did Rome come to rule the world? They slaughtered everybody that stood in their way. That's how they came to rule the world. Uh, Tacitus, famous historian, writes one of the most famous quotes about the Roman general Germanicus. And he says he slaughtered the world across the Rhine. For 50 miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. That's how they conquered. Theodore Seleucius says they made the boundaries of the empire the boundaries of the earth. So the Roman Empire rules the world through fear and intimidation. But who rules the Roman Empire? Caesars. Caesars. They made salads. No, okay. They're ruled by a series of Caesars. Uh, See, what happens is Rome starts out as a representative republic, and it moves very quickly when Caesar gets involved to a dictatorship. I feel like we're living that today sometime a little bit. Whatever. Okay. So, so, ooh. Okay, so Julius Caesar. I'm just going right over that. So Julius Caesar, right? He comes and he starts to unify this country. Uh, and, and in AD 44, he dies. By the year 27 BC, Octavian, who is his adopted son, becomes Caesar Augustus. Okay? Caesar Augustus means the supreme ruler, and he brings all of Rome under one headship, under one rule, all the world under his rulership. Caesar Augustus. Uh, After Caesar Augustus, you get Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius ruled during the time of Jesus' public ministry. Then you get Caligula, Nero, Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian suffers a near-fatal head wound that he lives through. Kind of freaked everybody out. Then you have Titus, who started as a general and ended up becoming a Caesar. He destroys the temple of God in 70 A.D., uh, in A.D. 81, you hit Domitian. Domitian is another Caesar who said he was God. And he said, if you want to be involved in any business in the empire, you have to worship him as a god. So you would go to his altar, you'd make an offering, you would get a mark on your hand or your forehead so you could buy and sell. The Jews believed this was blasphemy, and they started to call Domitian the beast. Now, his people came by land and by sea, and so he was the beast that came by land and by sea. You said you have to take his mark to buy or sell in the marketplace, which is a whole other story altogether. Okay, so we're going to focus on this guy called Caesar Augustus for a moment. This is the guy who was reigning in Rome when Jesus was born. So, Augustus ruled from Britain to India. 
That's the entire known world at that time. Parliament had declared him a god on the earth. And so temples were built and sacrifices were offered to the god Augustus throughout the Roman Empire. All over the empire in these conquered cities, altars were erected to the god Augustus, and he started to call these conquered cities ecclesias. This is where we get our word for church from. Virgil once said of Augustus, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation. Julius Caesar was said to be the son of Zeus or Jupiter, hence he was a god, and so Augustus started to call himself the son of God. Augustus said he's going to unite the world, he's going to bring a reign of peace. This is, ended up being, being called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There is peace in the land of Rome because Caesar Augustus was bringing that, but how did he bring that peace? By chopping people into pieces. That's how he brought that peace. In 17 BC, there was a comet or a star that was seen in the sky, and the priests started to say, this is Julius Caesar rising up into the heavens, and it was then showing the blessing of the heavens upon Caesar Augustus. And this became known as the season of Advent, the season of Advent. And then the priests would go and they would offer forgiveness for the people in the name of the god Augustus. At this time, Advent coins were made. And if you wanted to get some message through the economy really fast, you would put it on coins and print them, and you would send those coins throughout the empire. Uh, some scholars believe this is what happens when people go and they try and trap Jesus in Matthew 22, 17 to 21. They say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And on the coin it was a picture of Caesar. And essentially the text would say, Caesar is God. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the thing." That are God's. He clearly says Caesar is not God and not everything belongs to Caesar. So how does Caesar get so much power? We talked about it. His army, which was massive. And if he came into your, your place and, he, and you said Caesar is Lord, you would get temples, you would get bread and circus, you'd get taken care of. But if you wouldn't say it, you would get slaughtered and become a slave. So how does Caesar pay his army? How do we pay our army? Taxes! Is that- Second service, someone goes, not well. Because <laughs> yeah, we're next to a base military community, so there you go. Okay, so taxes, that, that's how you pay it. Now, some scholars believe that Jews in Jesus' area were paying upwards to 80 to 90% of their income in taxes. And so what would happen is, if in earlier times, if you were a Jew and you hit hard economic times, you could sell your land. But then eventually you would hit the year of Jubilee. And during that year, all land would go back to the people who originally owned it, to the families who originally owned it, because God always wanted their people to have something they could work and so they could take care of themselves and not have to be beggars and ask for handouts and not always see themselves as victims. And so the land was always supposed to go back. After Rome took over and they started getting into tough places and selling their lands, that couldn't happen anymore because Rome then owned the land. And sometimes as a Jew, you or your family get to a point you have to sell your land and learn a skill and go live someplace so you can take care of your family. That is where Luke chapter 2 starts. Luke chapter 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So, Joseph is what? What's his occupation? Carpenter. Carpenter. Seriously, never heard the Christmas story before, really? (laughs) He's a a carpenter. Joseph lives where? I'm not making it Nazareth. I'm not making it up. It's in the Bible. It's right there. I just read it to you. Nazareth, Nazareth. Okay, I know you're thinking, but but the series name is Jesus. Whenever you ask a question, it's supposed to be Jesus. 
I know, I got it. It's, it's hard. Nazareth, okay? Now, when the census takes place, he has to take his family where? Bethlehem. Because that was the land of his father. Somewhere in Joseph's family, they had to sell their land, learn a skill, and go live somewhere else to take care of their family. That is where Jesus shows up. Jesus was birthed in difficult economic times. Why were the difficult times? Because Caesar was the savior of the world. And Caesar was going to bring peace. That is what happened. Now, this is why Luke doesn't leave you on a downer, but he takes you to uh, chap- verse 10 of chapter 2. And he says, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? Savior. Who is Christ the what? Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Why does Luke tell you the things that he does? Because he wants you to know a Savior has been born. A true Lord has arrived. He is truly going to bring real peace. In a persecuted ethnic section of Rome, in a place called Israel, angels show up and they say, don't be afraid anymore. We're bringing you good news of great joy. It's going to be for everybody in the city of David. A Savior has been born and he is Christ the Lord and he is the true Lord and he is the true salvation. Now, when Luke wrote his gospel, you could be killed for having a copy of it in Rome. Can you see why? What does Luke think of Rome? Now, open to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. So, you got that. that that's kind of Rome. Well, what, what's going on right now on the ground in Israel? Well, if you're Caesar and you have this much land, you have to put other people in places to rule areas for you. Like, you know, governors and mayors and things like that. So, Uh, Caesar puts in a guy named Herod. Herod is a young warrior when he first goes in to Israel. And so he comes into Israel, and in 37 B.C., Jerusalem shuts its gates to him. And so he besieges Jerusalem and essentially slaughters everybody inside of Jerusalem. Now, as a king, Herod gets his power from Caesar, so he's always trying to make Caesar happy. It's like, they're going to close their gates to me. I will take them all out. And after he takes over the country, everywhere in Herod's kingdom, he built altars to Caesar. Now, you've got to remember, Herod is in the land of Jews who worship a God who said, don't make any idols, don't make any pagan images. And all of a sudden, you've got Herod, and he's putting these things everywhere. Now, was Herod a Jew? Yes, Herod was a Jew. He's an Edomite, which means he came from the line of Lot. And Lot, if you know anything about him, Lot was always a lot of trouble. Okay, that's how you remember who Lot was. Culturally, uh, Herod is Greek. Herod had been given by Rome the title King of the Jews. That was his title. He spoke Greek, but politically he always sided with Rome. So what was he like as he ruled this country under Caesar's rule? Well, along the coast, he wants to make sure he is always remembered. And so he makes this state-of-the-art Greek city, but the entire coastland is all swamp. But he knew if you could run shipping lines through your area, you could make a lot of money. So he rebuilt the coastline. This is really hard to do. Look what happened you know, a few years ago with the hurricane and, and New Orleans. It flooded, right? Well, he did the same thing way back then before anybody had an idea how to even do this. So he builds this city, and he calls it Caesarea. Who is Caesarea named for? Caesar, right. He's a brown noser. That's, that's what he's doing. Builds things named after Caesar. Now, at that time, the largest harbor in the world was in Athens. It was 60 acres. So he builds his, and it's 520 acres. Uh, you can see it. It's still buried under the breakwater there. This is a picture of what they imagined it looked like back in the time. This one right here. Right here. Just gigantic. 
gigantic. It's huge. He also decided he needed to get fresh water to all parts of the city. So what he does is he makes a 19-mile-long aqueduct to get fresh water into the city. Here's a picture of where it still stands today. Here's another picture. Close up. Where it still is today. Kind of amazing, right? Now, one time he's sailing into Caesarea. He doesn't like the way the city looks from the water. He decides he's going to put a veneer on a veneer of marble on every building that you can see from the water. And to this day, if you go into Caesarea and you walk on the beach, you will still find marble on the sea sand because Titus comes in again in AD 70 and he destroys it during the Jewish revolt. But in that destruction, those pieces of marble are still there. Now, Herod had 10 or 11 wives, depending on which history you read. Uh, he had 43 kids. At one point, he becomes suspicious of one of his wives as he goes on a trip. And so he says to his assistant, if I die on this trip, kill her. Thinking in case, you know, she might have something to do with it. So the assistant says, you better not die, or he better not die on this trip, or I'm supposed to kill you. So he doesn't die on the trip. He comes back, and she's a little cold and distant. <laughs> like you would be, right? Like, you, you're going to kill me. I love you, too. You know, that, that kind of thing. So he gets suspicious, and he kills her anyway. And then he kills her mother. He kills two of the sons that she bore him. He kills them. His old barber tries to stand up for these kids, and he executes him as well. He became suspicious of another one of his kids, so he drowns him in the family pool. He had a dispute at one point with the governing Jewish leaders who didn't want to follow what he said, so he killed them all. And he reinstates religious leaders who would listen to him and do what he said. You can see why the Jews were afraid of Rome when Jesus walked the earth. This is one of the reasons I think Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, because the relationship with the Jews and Herod was becoming so bad, they started to displease Rome. And Rome said, you need to do something about this. It's, it's getting really bad. You know, we get taxes from them, make them a little bit happier. And so Herod goes, you know what? I will do something that's going to make them all really happy. And what he does is he goes in and he extant, expands and rebuilds their temple. Uh, this, is, this is a picture of it right here. Next. There, okay. Now, can you see it on the map? Yeah. It's gigantic. This is, it became called uh, Herod's Temple. He built it with stones that were 10 feet by 10 feet by 80 feet. We didn't really have machinery that can move those things today, and somehow he rebuilt this. They sit three stories below the earth. Now, he's, he's, so he built this great temple in Jerusalem, but when he built it, he also took and placed a golden eagle on top of the temple. You know what a golden eagle represented? Rome. Exactly. So this, again, displeased the people because there's a pagan symbol on top of the temple of God that he just tried to make nice and rebuild. And so the people snuck in at night. They took down it and destroyed that symbol of Rome. And so Herod goes out. He has all the usual suspects rounded up. He has them executed. And the ones he thought were the ringleaders burned alive in front of everybody else. Now, Herod, also, he wanted to have a palace for himself. So he built one, and he called it the Herodian. He's not very creative, all right, whatever. And so he wanted it on top of a mountain, but there wasn't one where he wanted the palace, so he had a mountain built. This is it today. Still there. Still there. Uh, This is an artist's representation of what they thought it looked like at the time. And you see that pool down there on the bottom of it? Uh, So the pool was so large, it was nine feet deep, there's a gazebo in the middle of it. You had to get to that by boat. When I tell you he, he drowned one of his kids in the pool, that's the pool right there. That's the pool right there. I mean, seriously, it's just, just a crazy story. Now, uh, this, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you look out, you can still see a part of the Herodian. And in Matthew 21, 21, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. What he's saying is that if you have faith in who God is, 
You can do bigger things than Herod. You don't need to be afraid of him. God can do great things. And the Herodian also overshadowed Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Now, again, how does Herod pay for all these things? Taxes. Right, again, see, you're in church. It's not Jesus' this type. Taxes is good. All right, all right. That's, this is part of the why there's so much rebellion in Jesus' day. Now, Herod would live in cities like Jerusalem or the Herodian or Caesarea, and that's where he would stay. There's no really farmlands inside those cities. In the cities, the rich people lived, the elite, the rulers. The religious leaders of the Sadducees lived in the city, and they had kept all of their stuff because of Herod. And if you disagreed with him, he would take you out, put somebody in who would actually listen and follow him. So you have this group of religious elites and Herod in the cities. You have 80 to 90% of the country providing goods to be eaten by these people. You and I, we'd probably be peasant farmers, and, and they come and take our food just to feed these people in these cities. And so Herod literally taxed these people into homelessness, and that's how Jesus comes. When Herod is on his deathbed, he was in horrible pain, dies a horrible death, he did two things. The first thing he did is he, he said, round up all the, all the prominent, influential Jewish leaders and put them in the palindrome in Jericho. And when I die, go in and slaughter them all. Because what he wanted, he wanted there to be pain and wailing at his death. And there wasn't going to be crying and wailing when he died, but if he killed them, well, then at least there would be somebody wailing and crying at his death. The second thing he did is because he was in so much pain, he tried to commit suicide. Uh, one of the guards stopped him, but his palace is so big that on the other side, they didn't know if he succeeded or not. So his son, for lack of a better word, we'll call him the crown prince, decided he's just going to take power because he thought his dad died. Well, he didn't die, and he found out this crown prince took power, and he had him killed. If he would have waited five days, he would have been there anyway, but he had him killed because he took it too early. Josephus, who is the Jewish-Roman historian, says, Herod never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who chose to be the party of his enemies. And so Jesus is born in the time of King Herod. Jesus is going to be born as an enemy of Herod. Matthew chapter 2, where I had you open to, starting in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born, uh, uh, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? What's the words? King of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's Herod's title. That's a blow to Herod. Wait, wait, I'm king of the Jews. And they said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. No, no, wait, wait, the star, the star is supposed to reference Caesar. You're supposed to worship Caesar. That's how it's supposed to work. Now Herod's thinking, I've got to find somebody and kill somebody else. Says when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why all Jerusalem with him? Because they all keep their lifestyle because of Herod. Herod keeps his because of Caesar. And if a real king has shown up, then all of a sudden, Herod's going to lose his place. And so they're all worried about it. So what does Herod do? He wants to make sure this potential rival is removed, but he's thwarted in every attempt to find out which baby in Bethlehem was born king of the Jews. So he kills every baby in Bethlehem under two years of age. Jesus arrives, first or second Christmas, mass death. He comes into the world, and people die. This event became known as the slaughter of the innocents, which is a really interesting phrase when you think about the life and death of Jesus. And Matthew could have omitted this from his Christmas story. He could have been like, oh, yeah, and the angels and everything. It was so great and so wonderful. Jesus, woo, and could have just said that. But he doesn't. He actually underlines it. He quotes a, ver a verse from the prophet Jeremiah in verse 17. He says, then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, what Matthew is doing is he's trying to give voice to all the pain that they felt, the anguish and the suffering. I mean, we sing the song at Christmas. It's called Silent Night, right? Silent night, holy night, all is 
all is. But it wasn't calm and it wasn't bright for Jesus. He used to you know, sleep in heavenly peace. Jesus wasn't sleeping in heavenly peace. There's a price on his head. In verse 13, an angel comes to Joseph and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is Mary and Joseph's first or second Christmas. And this is what they get. We talked about Rome and Caesar and Augustus and Herod, but think about Joseph. Okay, well, all the stuff he lost. He loses his reputation as a righteous man because he married a woman who was knocked up by God. Someone came to you and said, oh, it's God. God did it. You'd be like, right. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so he, it, nobody thinks he can actually see anything clearly because you know, Mary can see by the Holy Spirit. Now he loses his home. He has to run to a country that is hostile towards the Jewish people. Merry Christmas. I mean, think about that. You and I, we, we live in such a cynical culture that if we were Joseph, we'd be thinking, God, I did what you asked me to do. I, I took in Mary. I'm going to love that baby like my own. I did what you asked me to do. Now do something for me. Because we see the relationship with God as like a tenant and landlord. God, I paid my rent. I did what you said. Now you got to do what, you, what I want you to do. That's how we think it's supposed to work. That's not how it works. I'm sure Joseph's thinking, we even named him Jesus, Savior, Deliverer. You said he would save his people. He can't even save his family. How's he going to save this country? What kind of salvation is this? That is exactly what we'd be thinking because that's the kind of culture that we are raised in. I think what God wants us to know is that if you have trouble in your life, if you don't know where tomorrow's going to take you, how you're going to live, how you're going to survive, or even if you're just disappointed with the way your holidays are turning out, the truth is Jesus has come for all of us. Maybe we'll complain a little less when we think about the real Christmas story, but he has come for us. And he does save his people from their sins, but he comes as a baby. He comes as a baby. He doesn't come full of superpowers. He comes humbly. Jesus is God made completely vulnerable. Last week we talked about humility. That is how God comes. Jesus is God exposed to all the evil in this world, so it might do its worst to him. And his response is to eventually suffer, but he will save. You see, Luke starts his gospel in a place of hopelessness. It's like, this is, you know, Caesar is reigning over everything. But his perceived hopelessness, because he goes to verse 10 and says, but the angels say, fear not, fear not. Matthew starts in a place of hopelessness, perceived hopelessness. But that's not where he ends. In uh, verse 19 of chapter 2, this is, this is what he goes on to. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. See, chapter 2 starts out during the time of King Herod. But it gets to chapter 19, and it goes to, but when Herod died. And Matthew, Matthew will go on in chapter 2 to tell you three times that Herod is dead. Why does he tell you that? Because Herod's dead. It's not rocket science, okay? It's right there in the scriptures. He says it over and over and over again. At the beginning of the chapter, Matthew deliberately calls him the king, King Herod. The Magi, the wise men, give their gifts to worship the true king, Jesus. And the tone shifts because at the end, he doesn't call him King Herod. He just says, Herod died because the true king has now been born. I mean, do you realize Herod could have gone out and Herod could have taken this baby Jesus and stood on top of the Herodian and proclaimed him to the world? But he didn't. He raised himself up and tried to protect all that he had. 
But then you look at the, at the Magi, the wise men, who were pagan astrologers from the east, and they came to worship him. Something today we would never even imagine. It is they who kneel before Jesus and give him their worship as the only true king. What, what it's kind of there to show you is that Herod held on to everything he had. These pagan astrologers let go of all their paganism. And they went and they let go and they worshiped the one and only true king. They held on to nothing but the savior of the world who held on to them. Matthew starts with Herod as king. Why? To show you a real king has been born and a star led them to the baby. Luke starts with Caesar Augustus issued a decree. He was Lord and Savior. He was going to bring peace. Why? To show the true son of God had been born to bring true peace. Herod was supposed to be the builder of the temple, the defender of Jerusalem. He's got all his wealth and power, and now Herod is dead. When Jesus starts his public ministry, Caesar Augustus is dead. You know who else is going to die? Us. Also not a trick question. Okay? All of us, we're, we're going to die. Jesus is crucified. He dies, but he rises from the grave. And he rules and reigns over everything, and he is still saving his people. He is Savior and He is Lord. And you must understand that how you respond to Jesus is the most important thing in the world. Matthew asks you, who is your king? Is it yourself? Is it Herod or is it Jesus? Luke asks you, who is your Savior? Is it yourself? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? That's the question that the Christmas story brings us down to. That's what we have to answer. And I know you may have a bad Christmas, okay? But Jesus knows what it is to have a bad Christmas. Trust me. He knows. His family knows. But he still dies to save us. He may not save you from your circumstances, but he will save you in your circumstances. And he offers hope no matter where you find yourself. And this is one of the reasons we talk about this, because we want you to be able to experience Christmas in a new way this year. Maybe in a way you've never even realized that Jesus as Savior, Jesus as King, Jesus as Lord, ruling and reigning over everything because you can trust Him. And sometimes not everything works out the way you want it to. But in the end, it will work out exactly the way that He intends, because He is sovereign and He is Lord. We, in our lives, we must give up and let go of our self-centeredness, of all the things that we hold on to like the wise men, and trust Jesus as the true Savior and the true Lord and the true King of all of our lives. Because I'll tell you, we are not good kings of our lives. We are not. If you look at our lives half the time, they are complete messes. You know, we, we ruin a relationship here. We say something we shouldn't say there. Our, you know, one of our neighbors may... You know, we, we're always doing all these little things. We are not good gods of our own lives. We are not. But Jesus is. And so in Christmas, that's what we remember. Savior, King, Lord of all. That is who he is. He is who we worship. He is an amazing God who came to save his people, even in that form of that baby. He grows up, dies, rises from the grave. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. It's where we remember that this baby grew into man and died for our sins, to bring us back to God, to truly bring us peace. And that peace first is peace between us and the God of the universe. That is the reconciliation of peace that first uh, means everything. And then from that, we are people get to go out and talk to everybody else about the reconciliation, the great peace that this baby brought to us. Again, you break that cracker like his body is broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I so we can be a whole and redeemed people. The band's going to come up. I asked Alex to actually uh, start after the message with Silent Night. And you might think, you just made fun of Silent Night. We get calm, we get bright, we get to sleep in heavenly peace because our king has come. And so the song makes perfect sense for us. It doesn't, doesn't make sense, you know, at the first Christmas where Jesus came what he was born into, but for us it does. 
I mean, this, it's a song of hope for you and I. Um, there'd be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, maybe you're living a place in your life where you don't have a whole lot of peace, where not a whole lot of things are making sense. Uh, you know, pray with them. Pray with them. They'd love to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he continues to do. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us somebody part of that worship. And there's some food and stuff in the back. Grab something to eat, meet somebody else, get to know them. Because, again, you know, we have these people around us. I mean, Joseph didn't run to Egypt alone. He took his family. He had a group around him. And we have a family in this place called Element. And we want all of you guys to connect to each other in a way that helps us through the hard times of our lives. We first focus on Jesus, but understand he has given us a community to live within as well. And that's why we're always trying to connect you in gospel communities, get you guys together, because our God is great, and he is wonderful. And I would encourage you to lay everything that you've been holding on to at the feet of this baby, because he is a true savior and a true king, and he really came to bring peace to his people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we'd be those who remember what true peace really is and what it really looks like. That it's not everything in our own lives going all the way that we want it to go. But it is the people who humbly submit and bow themselves before you. Like the wise men, the pagan astrologers. Who laid aside all their paganism to worship the one and only true king. I ask that we would not live lives like Herod where we cling to all the things that make us think we have this temporary peace but we let it all go, trusting you as our God and as our Lord and as our Savior and as our King. Father, so often in our lives, we are a people who bear such bad fruit. And we ask you, you know, to dig us up and reroot us and make us into the people that you call us to be so that we would lift up your Son, And all the world would know that a true Savior has been born. And this true Savior died for his people. And this true Savior rose from the grave. And all the world can now know true peace. Because of the goodness of the God who saved us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.